You're listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Darren Keeler has been working as a freelance prop master and artisan located in the Omaha area since 2009 and is currently the prop master at the Omaha Community Playhouse. He loves spending time with his wife, Megan, and their two dogs, Major and Maverick, as well as their cat, Mabel. Darren is an avid home brewer with a soft spot for hard cider. Darren Keeler, welcome to the green room. Thank you very much for having me. So as we start out the podcast, as I always like to do, where are you from originally? I am from Columbus, Nebraska. So about an hour 45 west of here. Okay. And then uh, what grade school did you go to? I went to St. Anthony's and then went to SCOTUS for high school and graduated and then did uh, two years there at Central Community College where I kind of made the choice to do theater after I decided I didn't want to do pre-med anymore. Okay. <laughs> so do you still have family out in Columbus? Oh, yeah. Yep. My uh, my folks still live out there. And then my youngest youngest sister still lives out in that direction there. Okay. How so many brothers and sisters do you I have? I have two younger sisters. Okay. So I'm the oldest. Any of them have any desire for any performing arts or uh, are they all pre-med too? No, no. no. Nope, no performing arts. My sister, Jessica, who lives here in Omaha, she is a bodybuilder and kind of a stay-at-home mommy. And then she does some part-time work at some of the grade schools, too. So, okay. So, yeah. And then my younger sister uh, is living at home and uh, just kind of living her life. So Cool. Yeah. That's good. That's yeah. good. We all need to live our life. Right. When you were in grade school... Did you participate in any of the school plays? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I was center of attention, actor kind of guy. Do you remember your first role? Mm, probably something biblical. Right. You know, like I, <laughs> I know it. I was Catholic I, school stuff. Exactly. You know? I, I, pig on Noah's Ark. That was my first one. So <laughs> I know it. Yeah, it was probably something like that. But no, I mean, it continued all the way through through high school. Um, you know, did acting, did speech, did swing choir you know, acted all the way through uh, community college. And then when I got to Omaha here, I actually came to act. Okay. Yeah. No, I was uh, in Hamlet. I think it was my first show at UNO, which okay. would have been 2007. And that's when I decided I, I, I didn't want to act. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to ask why. I, it just wasn't, it wasn't something I wanted to do anymore. I grew up, uh, my folks are both woodworkers. Uh, my dad's actually an engineer with a, a pharmaceutical company, uh, Beckton Dickinson. Uh, but he's really great with his hands and problem solving. And my mom does woodcrafts and kind of has her own little boutique store. Uncles were all um, construction, you know, management, carpenters, you know. And so going through community college and then coming to Omaha here, you know, I was building the sets there at CCC. And then Robbie Jones uh, was new to UNO my first year, so we kind of hit it off, and I just kind of found an act for it. You know, that's just what I wanted to do. 
Did you help your dad do any woodworking or anything like that when you were growing up? Oh, all the time. There's a great picture. I'll, I'll see if I can find it. I'll send it to you on Facebook. It's me, and I think I'm maybe 10 years old behind a scroll saw. <laughs> so um, they started us young. Yeah. So. And I think I remember correctly, you correct me if I'm wrong, when when we got to talking during Men on Boats that you were a Boy Scout. Is yep. that true? Yep. For a long time. For a long time. Now, were you a Cub Scout before you were a Boy Scout? Yep. Or did you? Yep. No, I did the I, whole, whole damn thing. did the whole thing. <laughs> I asked because I somehow made it out of brownies. I didn't, I wasn't in brownies, but I was, I was in Girl Scouts and I had like, okay. I don't know. I didn't have very many. I wasn't a very good Girl Scout. I, I, I remember like one patch on my sash that was like for photography. It was like a little box camera, but I don't remember hey, but anything. You got a patch, though. Right. Like you got a patch. I did. It was probably like the only one. I don't even think I did. I don't even think. I think they gave everybody a patch for like selling cookies. And I don't even think. I don't even think I got the patch. You know, for the, the Boy Scouts are not much different at <laughs> yeah, times. Right. Sorry, Boy Scouts. You know, I think if you show up and you have a pulse, a lot of the times right. you can get the patch. So. And then did you like make it up to like Eagle Scout? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. No, I actually worked for the summer camp um, out by between Fremont and Cedar Bluffs, uh, Camp Cedars. I worked out there from when I was 15 till I was 23, okay. 23, 24. I, it was a long time. I think yeah. it ended up being 19 or uh, nine years, 10 years. Okay. So I spent a lot of my life living in a canvas tent. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but it was, nothing, it was good memories. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's I nothing wrong with it. that. There's nothing wrong with that. Getting back to some of the things that you did when you were at the community college, mm-hmm. what were, what were a couple of the shows that you did out there? I was Eugene and Brighton Beach Memoirs and then Van Helsing and Dracula. I mean, the shows were your typical community college. Yes. I don't want to say garbage shows, but <laughs> your standards, <laughs> your How standards, about, you know, your standards. Yeah, because the 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 shows are fun. They're they're campy. Brighton Beach was really good. I I enjoyed that one a lot. And to be honest with you, I I can't remember any of the other shows there. We did a lot. I yeah. mean, we did four or five five yeah. shows a year. I I say a lot. That's not a lot to me anymore. Well, Coming for the playhouse. No, well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's like a drop in the bucket. So you came to. Um, you know, you said in 2008? 2006. 2006. 2006, 2007, I think. Okay. So, and then I finished out my undergrad there. Okay. Uh, and that was in technical theater then? Mm-hmm. Yep. And it wasn't until probably the end of end of my undergraduate career going into graduate school that I really decided I wanted to do props. Uh, you know, I, I started as a TD track and then realized that that's way too much stress for me. And then, uh, you know, just general carpentry and then kind of went into the nuanced stuff of the, the prop side. What is it about being a prop artist and what, what drew you to that nuance? Was it the fact that you, that woodworking itself has a lot of intricate detail? And so with some props, it's that way. And so you got to, do you know? I think it was, it's the challenging nature that it's always something different. I jump from project to project a lot. Uh, and with props, it's nice because there's something different on the workbench every other week. You know, uh, when I first came to the playhouse, it, there's so many shows, you know, so it was, it was 
rapid paced. You know, there was a lot of times where we had like a nine day working turnaround or working day turnaround from one show to the other, from taking rehearsal props to final props. So it was just this bam, 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 get it done, you know, put it together and make it look good. You know, but I get to do everything from metal work, like molding, welding, um, a lot of Arduino programming. So like microcontrollers, we use those a lot anymore for, you know, intricate lighting effects to our animatronics, like the exploding bluebird, the enchanted rose from Beauty and the Beast, or um, our Nazi pigeons, which are a particular right. favorite of mine. Yes. So, and we'll and we'll get into those things because yeah. I know there, you know, all of those, all of those that you've mentioned are all shows that I saw. Okay. So, Great. so yes, the the little you know the little <laughs> Nazi pigeon salute, which you know, which cracked me up. Uh, the bluebird that exploded, spoiler alert, um, that, you know, that happened in Shrek and stuff. And you sit there as an audience member and go, how in the world did they come up with that? So obviously, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, when you came out of UNO, you probably, did you have knowledge, a good working knowledge of how animatronics worked? Nope. Okay. Nope. I yeah. kind of, I mean, so, yeah. th- so then that leads to the question, which we will get to okay. is how does one get to that? But before we get to okay. that, so you graduate from UNO mm-hmm. and then if I remember from your bio from Ragtime, you had done a couple of prop propping for the Blue Barn. Yep. Blue Barn, Nebraska Shakespeare. Yep. So at that point you were a freelancer. Mm hmm. Let's we're, talk we're a, Best Buy. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about getting involved with those theaters and maybe the complexities of you're starting out, you've learned what you've learned. What did you learn that you took out into the world from like being a you got your degree in technical theater, but your emphasis was in props or that was the track that you wanted to take. So how does that translate to you get a script and you sit down? Um, am I going to build this prop? Am I, you know, yeah. is it something I'm going to find somewhere? Is it something that they already have? I think a, a lot of it to me starts with the budget and where we sit. You know, is it a is it a beg, borrow, buy, you know, kind of show? Um, you know, when I was freelancing, especially coming from UNO, the, the UNO prop budgets at the time, I think we had $200 to do the Miracle Worker. And, you know, that was food props. Thank God water's free. I, I know, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, but the problem was, is the pitchers weren't. Right. They wanted to uh, break two of those water pitchers a night. Sure, uh, sure. You know, and that, I find that prop people become more and more resourceful the less money they have to work with, you know. Uh, well, you have they, to become, you have to become more ingenious on how. You have to start thinking real creative. Right. <laughs> how are you going to make things work? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a workbench in the prop shop of UNO that I built while I was there that has a, a little under shelf there that was for the purpose of me taking naps uh, because I would spend so much time in that back room there. And particularly uh, when we did the Miracle Worker. Uh, so we had to mold and cast these water pitchers. And since the budget didn't allow for nice, clean silicone rubbers, we had to use, it's called Rub-R Mold. It's a latex-based ammonia solvent you know, product. It's nasty. It stinks to high heaven. And 
Whereas silicone, you can do a mold in a single layer. You had to do 12 to 14 layers of this latex stuff with an hour in between each layer. So there was 14 layers on one side, 14 layers on the other. So uh, the better part of like 30 hours of my life, you know, over two days spent in the Puno prop shop making these, just the mold of it, you know, and then making these runs of, you know, water pitchers, you know. So I think what I learned coming into the freelance side of things is that you have to be conscious of what you're spending and that your time is worth something. Because I, from that point forward, I didn't want to spend 30 hours on a project again. Sure, <laughs> sure. If there was an easier way to do it. Right, you know? right. Yeah, um, I liken it to saying, well, that's breath I won't get back. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. When you, I'm going to focus on this for a minute because yeah. this is interesting to me. So when you focused on, this is how I'm going to make this picture within mm-hmm. this budget. So obviously, how did you get to determine that in order to do this, I'm going to have to use this particular material. Is this something that you tap into the knowledge of other theater people? Do you do research on the internet? How how did you how do you find your, for lack of a better term, how do you find your muse to create these things? So, so Robbie Jones, uh, who has just finished his tenure at uh, UNO, he's moving on. Uh, was kind of my muse. Okay. You know, we I, I bounced a lot of ideas off of him, and I had a really great relationship with with Robbie. At, right. You know, through through undergrad, into grad school, and even professionally, still. You know, we constantly bounce stuff off of each other. And when it came to the molding side of things, you know, Robbie had done some molding. This would have been my first time, you know, doing anything like that. And we kind of looked at the budgets. You know, you know, could we could we go out? And could we buy pictures? You know, for the show. Uh, the ones that we found that the director liked were, I think, $16 a piece, you know, and then they wanted to break two of those a night and we do, you know, two weeks, two weeks of run. So if you figure, we'll say 15 performances with tech or something of that nature, you know, that, that adds up quick. Yeah. Um, you know, so then we started looking at molding materials and the molding materials can run you for the nice stuff, you know, 50 to a hundred dollars, you know, for the silicone rubber, but you're able to use it over and over again. Uh, with the latex stuff, we were able to get this nice cheap bottle of rubber mold for $20 and being the young and dumb, you know, undergraduate that I was, I was, yeah, sure. This is fine. I can sit here for 30 hours and do this, you know, (laughs) but what you gain from it is a working knowledge of how, how mold layering builds up and, you know, how to make a good clean mold. And there, there were mistakes that I made while making that mold, uh, that I learned from, you know, and I, I will never make those mistakes again. Right. And one of them is never using that latex product again. Okay. <laughs> but. And I think you probably with every single prop that you end up having to make, you probably learn how, you know, you'll learn something from it for, for totally. the future. I like to say it's putting, anytime you have an opportunity to put a feather in your hat or to learn a new skill, like take it up, do mm-hmm. it. You know, if it's, the coding side of things, you know, I bought a cheap Arduino, you know, kit and book off of Amazon and just kind of went to town making lights blink. And I mean, look where it's, you know, got me now. I just finished up a project with Paul Pape. It hasn't aired yet and I can't really talk about it, but the, the effects that I'm doing in there now, you know, if you would have told me that I would have been doing that when I bought that cheap kit off of Amazon, I would have mm-hmm. laughed in your face. <laughs> right. So, but 
you know, I think that again, that's the nature of the prep person. You know, it's somebody who's always, always picking up a new skill set, always learning is just this kind of weird. And I'm honest, weird. I've never met a prop person that's not weird. You know, sorry, Amy. Yeah, we're one in the same boat here. <laughs> I think you have to think outside the box, though. Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think you really do have to think outside the box, you know, to to make some of those things work. I mean, you look at some of the videos that I've seen on things that are being done on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And you look at some of the sets, but you look at some of the props and how things are done, and you're like, how do these people come up with these ideas? And that's that's what's so fascinating for me. And so, you know, for an audience member who goes to see the miracle worker, they see a pitcher being broken every night mm-hmm. or twice a night. They don't know. They probably think, oh, they went out and they bought a whole bunch of them on Amazon. Yeah. They don't stop to think of the craftsmanship that goes into so many of those things. I mean, we had 40, I think 40 test run pictures that we made, you know, of different mixes of plaster and another material called Ultra Cal, uh, which is just, it's a a fancier plaster. It's got a little bit more silica in it because we wanted to make sure the noise was right. You know, that it was a sharp enough noise every time it broke, you know, and after... 40 so 40 or so casts you know we finally found one that sounded right and then we started making the real ones yeah <laughs> so that's wild yeah that's wild and then you look at something like evil dead mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. uh and you look at like all the blood that you had to deal with with that let's take a moment to discuss Blood techniques. Okay. <laughs> and and I don't know at that point, I don't know how long you'd been working at the at the playhouse by th- that point. That might have been my second or third season. Maybe. It's been a long ride. So oh, yeah. Far. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because you started in the playhouse in 2012? 12. Yep. Okay. The year I got married. Okay. Yep, so 2012. So, okay. So before we get to the blood, anything... What would you say before you started working at the Playhouse? Was there a show that was really challenging prop-wise besides like the pictures from, was there anything in either Jekyll and Hyde or? I think the challenge, the challenging part transitioning from, from grad school into the Playhouse was not having a, a working shop. Like I've, I've, come very, it, I find myself relying very heavily on having a dedicated workspace, you know, where I can have the lathe or my different woodworking tools. And for a lot of those shows, I was working either out of my basement or out of the back of my blazer and pulling up to said location, you know, with my kind of little work setup. You know, I had my vehicle broken into a number of times and <laughs> realized that wasn't a great idea. You know, so coming to coming to the playhouse and establishing myself there with a, a workshop. I don't know what I would do without a shop uh, that I rely, I probably rely too heavily upon it. I would say that's probably the, the biggest challenge is not having my tools within an arm's reach or a short walk. Sure. Yeah. Sure. When you get a show like Evil Dead, the musical, I mean, you pretty much know going in before you read it. Okay, this is, <laughs> if you've seen the movie, you know what's, you know what's coming. Pardon me, yeah. 
So, and I suppose it's like this with any play or any musical that you are tasked with creating the props for. You sit down, hopefully you read the play, hopefully you read the musical, (laughs) and you look at probably when you sit down, do you kind of go, okay, this one is one that I know we have in stock or we can assimilate it enough or this one I know we're going to buy. This is an if pile. This is, depending on which way the budget's going to go, I'm either going to have to call around and see if I can find it or I'm going to have to make it on my own. So do you kind of compartmentalize that? And Very, and- very much so. And especially now uh, because we've got a, I have a great assistant at the Playhouse. She's part-time. She was a former apprentice. Um, and we jive really well together. So Carrie starts generating the initial list. And then we go through that list and we say, you know, is, is this something readily available online? Can we purchase it? So for instance, with sweat right now, uh, we needed a rubber baseball bat, you know, for one of the fight scenes. I know there's a great company out there called New Rule FX, and they make a bunch of, you know, urethane foam weapons. And I, you know, it's by the time you look at what it was going to cost me to buy the molding rubber, to make the mold, to cast the piece, paying them $50 to do the deed, it, it's well worth it. You right. know, so... I think with time, you you start to realize what you can get away with purchase-wise, what's worth your time to make, you know, or what you're able to outsource, you know. And sure. I think that's a lot of that's a lot of the fault of a young prop master is they want they want to build everything, or they want to buy everything, or they think that they're going to be able to find it all in an antique store, <laughs> you know. And I that's just not the case, you know. I, I find myself shopping far less, you know, because of that. I, I, the time it takes me to drive from my circuit of antique stores, I could spend a day and I may not find what I'm looking for, you know, or I could spend 15 minutes with a napkin and a piece of paper or a pencil. I could draw out the piece of furniture that I want and I can make it out of some scrap two by, you know, but it's taken me, you know, umpteen years to, to realize that that's more worth my time. Sure. You know, sure. So I realized, you know, starting with that list, you know, saying that, yes, I have this in my inventory. This is a little bit more custom. We're probably going to have to build this. But also then going through and saying, like, no, buy that, buy that, buy that. You know, it's not worth our time to dig, you know, either dig through stock or to to call around for it. Bicycle horns was a big one for mm-hmm. uh, one man, two governors, mm-hmm. you know, especially when they wanted them in different pitches, you know. So then it was like, okay, go to Amazon and just, just start buying a bunch of random bicycle horns. Once we get them here, we'll put them through a, a pitch app and see what their tones are, and we'll go from there. You know, I, I hate to say it, but you have to buy your way out of a problem sometimes. Sure. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't like to do that. No, but sometimes, but. yeah. Well, and when you have a big show like One Man, Two Governors, and you have a huge amount of props, sometimes you got to pick your battles and go, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, Very much well, so. we're going to do this, and we're not going to do this, and, you know, sometimes that's just... That's just how it is. Yeah. When you work with directors, do you find that there's, is there a lot of collaboration when it comes to props or maybe it depends on, on the director? Now, I know like for me personally, when I direct, costumes aren't my forte. 
So if a customer comes to me and says, what do you think about this? Nine times out of 10, I'm going to be like, that's great. That's excellent because I know nothing about costumes. So I'm leaving it up to you to, you know, as long as they're dressed well and I don't see any naked parts, we're good, you know, because I'm going to leave that up to you to decide. Because otherwise, you know, as directors, sometimes you don't want to micromanage. Mm hmm. And sometimes, I mean, I've made mistakes where I'm like, oh, I want this or I want this for a picture. And then I find out later, oh, that's not Prague. And I'm like, well, the internet (laughs) said it was Prague. (laughs) I swear to God, the internet said it was Prague. I've never been, but the internet said, no, that's da, 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 da. And I'm like, oh, you know, and then you're an idiot. How does that collaboration work usually with you and with directors that you work with? I think a lot of the times our job is to to take the director's vision and like, especially the prop master, you know, cause we're prop masters. We're not prop designers. You know, we, our job is to facilitate the director's vision and the, the scenic designer's vision and meld those two worlds together. You know? So if, if you didn't necessarily know it was Prague, you know, but I didn't think the general public was you know, going to catch on to it either, then I think it's fine. We'll call it Prague. Nobody's right. going to know the difference. Right. You know, if it's a glaring, you know, issue, then, then yeah, we can, we can work it out together and we can fix that, you know, but nine times out of the 10, the, the directors, I have more notes for myself than a director has for, for me during the tech process. You know, we, we make a running list of double A's, A, B, C, you know, in order of their priority for the day, you know, half the time we get like a note or two and I've added 15 to 20, you know, to our, our keep list. And then I'm getting texts from Carrie, you know, while I'm sitting in tech and she's like, stop adding things to the list. And I was like, I can't, I got to keep doing it. Right. You know, I enjoy the lead up process to the show. You know, it's when everybody's in the same room, we're problem solving, we're, we're tackling it together. That sharing of ideas, you know, when we get to the tech process, then I get a little frazzled and I start drinking a lot more coffee and then it's just get to the finish. You know, the show's going to come up and it's going to go down. You know, get everything done that you can get done. And a lot of the times it's what am, what is the audience going to notice? What is the director going to notice? What's going to make the actors feel better about what they're, you know, what they're doing on stage, you know, and let's focus on those first. And then Darren's nitpicky notes can come at the last part, you know, we call those C notes. Those are Wednesdays and Thursdays. So. Okay. Okay. So I'll swing back to Evil Dead. Okay. So <clears throat> Evil Dead provided the challenge because you had to have lots and lots of blood, and you had to have lots and lots of blood that not only sprayed your actors, but sprayed the audience because you had splatter zones. Mm-hmm. And even though the audience members had plastic sheeting over them to keep them from getting messy. I'm sure in the back of everybody's head it was, but we know what's going to happen with the plastic and it's going to get underneath and people are going to get messy. So can you explain to me the process of how you, because I know what you ended up using because I actually called you about using gravity and momentum stuff for, for Dracula and we ended up not using it. Explain to me when you get a script like that and you just know that's going to be like a prop nightmare, how you don't just start drinking your homebrew right away and say, Oh, I'm... what makes you think I don't? <laughs> <laughs> how do you, how do you tackle something like that? 
I, you know, I think the first thing is just to breathe, right? You, you know, it's going to be there. It's right. not going anywhere. You know, so you're going to have to tackle it one way or the other. Uh, luckily with evil dead, we kind of split it apart. The, the audience blood was handled by the scene shop and then the blood that had to be, you know, on the stage and with the actors and in the actor's face was in my realm. You know, so the scene shop started work on blood cannons, you know, that were, you know, 55 gallon drums that were the source for the liquids and it was all pneumatic driven. And I think that combination ended up being, I want to say water, a little bit of red food coloring and maybe some soy sauce. There might have been soy sauce in that. I don't know. And then for the onstage stuff was the blood jam, you know, but again, it comes down to, you know, knowing what's worth spending the money on. You know, the Blood Jam product that comes out of Chicago, it's great. It's actor safe. It's food safe. It smells like a, a, a Luden's cherry cough drop. It definitely does not taste like a Luden's cherry cough drop. <laughs> it's very deceiving, you know, because if you're going to give it to an actor, you better do it yourself first. You know, right. so there was a lot of a lot of hitting Darren into the face with blood. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it it is safe to have in your mouth. It does not taste good, but it, it's got a great color. The only downside to it is it it is pretty sticky. Um, you know, and that was probably the bigger challenge of that show is mitigating the cleanup, you know, we had curtains on stage when uh, Brian Zeeland would cut off his hand with the chainsaw. There's this big blood fountain that would come up and out of there and it would hit these, the curtains that were in the kitchen area. By the end of that show, the curtains stood up on their own. You know, when we took them down and set them up on the stage there, I, it was awful. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're going to find blood stains on the floor of that theater when they pull it up. Um, you know, but there's a lot of, a lot of trial and error that comes with that. You know, there's a, Great video. If you ever catch Darren Golden, uh, he's the new TD now at the the Playhouse. Um, he's got a video of me sitting in front of one of their blood cannons and just eating it. <laughs> like losing a hat, losing my glasses. It's great. It's good time. You know, again, if you're going to put an actor in front of it, you better be willing to do it yourself. Right. You know, so with those, those type of shows, those big iconic ones, you know, looking at what your big challenges are going to be for that one, it was going to be the blood. And then the next big challenge is that it's a very iconic cult following show. You know, people are going to know if it doesn't look right. You know, so the chainsaw, we went out to eBay and bought the Home Light XL chainsaws, you know, broken ones off of eBay because that is what they used in the movie. And then rebuilt them and took all the innards out of them, made it so that Brian could stick his hand in there. You know, there are a lot of those different things. You know, right. That. And see, and that's that's the great attention to detail. You know, nine, like you said, like 99.9% of the people aren't going to know that aren't going to know that that, that chainsaw that, is, that what chainsaw is, right? is what it is, but you're going to have that 1% that's going to come in. That's going to be like, Oh, that's the actual chainsaw. <laughs> right. But that makes it worth it. Yeah. But you know, it is, it's that, it's that attention to detail. We turn to going a little more high tech. So you've okay. got evil dead and we're going to spray the audience with pneumatics, mm-hmm. you know, pneumatics and get the blood on you. And now we kind of move ahead to pigeons with little Nazi hats in the producers yep. and giving a salute, which <laughs> I, it was pro- I think I fell out of my seat when that happened, when I saw that. 
first of all, was that something that's in the script that, or was that something that you guys decided this is going to be really funny no, and we're going to do it? I'm pretty sure it's in the script. Okay. The, the pigeons. And I think more often than not, they end up being kind of hand puppets behind the coop. Okay. And then for the way it was designed, there really, really wasn't a way to hide somebody over there. Right. Uh, you know, and we talked about doing it a bunch of different ways, you know, whether it was wires or, you know, pneumatics can drive it a little bit. Finally, I just kind of asked for permission to to try animatronics and, you know, program these birds to do to do this. I'd never done anything like that. So you, you know? had not worked with animatronics? No, you had not no. worked with fake any it. like robotics or anything like that? No, nope, fake it till you make it. Okay. <laughs> so tell me, so now we're going to spend some time talking okay. about this process because it was really, really cool. And obviously it was probably done by remote control. Yep. So you made the decision that you're going to try and... Do these animatronic pigeons. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we... The first thing we started with is taking Jim's design for this coop and seeing, okay, exactly how much space do we have? How many pigeons do we want to actually move, right? And we came up with the that all three, three of the top pigeons were the ones that needed to do something. The ones inside the cage could be dummies and just kind of sit there. So then we worked with uh, Jim and the director to say, okay, what movements do you want these birds to do? You know, so we settled on sway, uh, sway from left to right peck motion, and then the wing salute was right. the third. You know, So then it's like, okay, now we have three, three animations. Now figure out how each one of those animation works. So I took a bunch of super glue and popsicle sticks and paper brads and like rubber bands and some strings and just made up a bunch of simple mechanisms. And I've, I've got pictures of them and I'll, I can put those up on Facebook and everything like that. But for a couple of days, I just kind of sat there playing with popsicle sticks. I felt like a like a preschooler again playing with the tinker toys. But it's it's a lot of fun, you know. You you, you try something and like, okay, that works. You set that off to the side and like, okay, that's my sway. I was like, well, but if I look at that a little bit more, and if I add this here and another paper bread there, like it kind of looks like a bird's neck, you know, bird neck pecking there. I'm like, okay, well. And if I do that same thing here with the wing and I just make that a string that pulls down, like, okay, like I got a, I got a wing salute. So then it's build up the mock, right? You know, so it's take all of these guys, put them into one, one little animatronic figure or one little mechanism, I should say. It's not animatronics yet because we haven't added motors. And, uh, you know, so this popsicle stick model came up and I was like, okay, this, this could work, you know. Took it into AutoCAD, took dimensions off of the popsicle sticks and redrafted it in AutoCAD. And if you look at my original 3D models, they just look like thick popsicle sticks. It's the funny part, you know, when, when somebody says, how did you come up with this? And I was like, well, I was eating a popsicle and I was like, hey, there we go. <laughs> um, so we 3D printed these. Uh, Paul Pape allowed me to print on his printers. We printed all these armatures and then we started putting servos and motors into these. Uh, and I would say that the the programming side of it, that was the first time, other than making an LED blink, that was the first time we had used an Arduino in the prop shop. So it was a dive headfirst into the code, you know, learn it, you know, understand it, how to make these these motors run left to right. And uh, I think it came out okay. Uh, you know, there was a an Arduino was in the controller, uh, and I believe it was Brooke Fensel 
she was the actress that was controlling the pigeons. So she had a controller that she could press one button to make the birds sway to the right. Another button made the birds sway to the left. There was a button that made them peck. And then a button that did the salute. And they actually went off in January to the Paramount Theater in Chicago. Oh, wow. And so our three pigeons were in their production to the producers, along with the code, our 3D models, and an additional three pigeons that they built. Wow. So that was that was pretty cool. I was excited yeah. to uh, see my little leavelings leave the nest. Exactly. You know. Now, how did that theater company find out about your work? So I wrote an article for Stage Directions okay. um, called Codes and Coops, uh, which was just kind of a basic rundown of how we did the pigeons. Uh, and then that stemmed from an earlier article I did for them on LEDs and props. So do you write for them regularly? No, I, I don't. I Nobody should ask me to write. I'm a horrible <laughs> writer. It's a miracle I made it through grad school. So thank you, everybody who's listening here who proofread those articles. Because <laughs> there was a lot of you. No, so and then uh, there's a great organization called SPAM, the Society of Prop Artisans and Managers. And my name gets around through there every now and then as to different projects we're working on. And they knew we had had, you know, producers pigeons. So and now we're currently rebuilding what I'd like to call Nazi Pigeon 2.0. They're more bells and whistles. You okay. Know, we've, we've, we've upped our game a little bit. Sure. You know? So there was one Arduino controlling all of the birds and all the birds did their own or did the things together. This new setup is each bird is going to have its own little brain and the bird can turn its head from side to side. It can flap its wings. It'll still be able to do the salute, but they'll all have their own independent kind of look to them. Very nice. Yeah. I mean, you, well, you, you got to well keep shop uh, them, You might as well shop them out around the country. Oh, no doubt. You know, there are, you know, a lot of people, people are always going to do the show. Oh yeah. And nobody wants to build them. No. So, well, no, exactly. And I mean, yeah. Why reinvent the wheel if somebody else is already doing it? Totally. So, and there you go. Big, yeah. bar, big bro and shop. Yeah, no doubt. No <laughs> and doubt. rent. <clears throat> and then, so, you know, the, 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 the birds, you know, learning that new skill and putting that feather in the hat, you know, it's led to us using Arduinos in the Enchanted Rose, which is basically the same code, just a little tweaks, you know. Because um, that's the so that's the one that was inside the glass container yeah, yeah. that the that the beast. Mm-hmm. And if you if you were to lift it up and look underneath of there, there were six servos underneath and they had piano wire attached to them uh to the servo horns and at the top of the piano wire was a little rare earth magnet and on each pedal there was a tiny metal washer so as the the light cue would come from the board and the servo or the arduino would take the cue translate that into a servo motion the servo would pull down pulling the magnet away and And causing the pedal to drop so for that particular Effect. It was tied into the light board mm-hmm. as opposed to having somebody do it exactly. like it was done with the producer pigeons. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to. So sometimes you want. Is the that done like ha- on a MIDI cue? Is that how that works? That or? uses. Um, there's a product out there called RC4 Wireless. Oh, um, okay. They are wireless DMX controllers. Oh. Um, they started out as little two channel dimmers uh, for the purpose of dimming an LED on and off. 
right? Through their software, though, you can have them be an on-off. You can have them be dim. You can change the, the curve of it. But what we've done is then utilized uh, little 12-volt relays. So the dimmer takes the signal from the board, says that it's on or off. When it's on, it triggers the relay. And the relay just acts as a connector point for the Arduino. So it reads it as though a person is there pressing a button every time that relay goes. Gotcha. What this has then turned into is RC4 giving us a uh, semi-permanent loan of one of their new devices, which has direct communication into Arduinos. So it allows us 512 different inputs from a light board to control these devices. Wow. So I've been working on that in my off time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to make their new device work with yeah. some of our older projects. Very cool. So, Very cool. It's, it, it, it's, that's not always the desired outcome though. You know, sometimes you really need that actor's touch, you know, like Brooke Fensel did a great job, you know, because the, the birds needed the to sway. Yeah. Right. right? Like she had, had the comic timing. Music, you know, mm-hmm. for something like the Beauty and the Beast Rose, you know, that could be a pedal drop off of a light cue, you know, right. it could be in sync with whatever Jim wanted to do with movers. Sure. You know, sure. um, the exploding bluebird is kind of another one of those things, you know, it's, it's to the music and I'm sorry, Mackenzie, I know it didn't work all the, all the time. We still don't know why, <clears throat> but, uh, Oh, sometimes yeah. it didn't blow up. No, sometimes like either the timing was off or it wasn't taking the light board cue for some reason. Oh, so that one was done on a light board as yeah. well. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, when you pull the prop down and you take it back up to the prop shop and you can sit it and you can run it a hundred times and, right. you know, and, and never get an error, you know, right. it's like a, I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you do at that you know, point? It's live theater. You right. Know, it's it's going to happen. Right. But yeah, that one. Well, it blew um, up the night that I saw it. So it was really well, fantastic. cool. <laughs> I'm glad it did. I'm glad. I was like, that's really cool. Yeah. There's a, there's a little, like, again, it's the, those Nazi pigeons, man. They come back to the code from there, you know, that, that influenced a lot of the code and the exploding bluebird. And then that mixed, servos and some uh, pneumatic cannons into there too so it yeah it it's been a it's been a trip yeah <laughs> so obviously those are probably the most complex props that that you've done mm. yeah i would say so probably the most challenging challenging as well or i i don't know or I were the, the f- boats from men on boats the most Ooh. challenging <laughs> I, those were those were the most stress inducing yeah um yeah no, I think challenging furnitures, like uh, like trick furniture, like furniture mm. that needs to behave in a certain way, I find that more challenging. Because a lot of the times what we do with furniture on stage, that furniture was never meant to behave in that manner. You know, um, a particular one is the, the one man, two governor's chair. So we had a matching one that was up in our accounting office and we, that a majority of the prop furniture that's in our inventory is actually in other people's offices around the building. Cause why let nice furniture sure. know, sit in a cold, dark storage unit? Sure. So we pulled that down and reupholstered that, but then we had to make a matching chair out of it. So it's kind of this mid century modern, you know, real thick cushion, but a real, you know, slim back. And Steve Cranbeck was initially supposed to throw himself backwards into it and roll out of it on stage to catch a peanut. Um, the weight in which, you know, they hit it, you know, and the movement of it, you know, a normal chair would have broke, you know, three times in a rehearsal, you know. So we 
we built a steel one, you know, basically as, as best of a replica as what we could. And by the time we were done building this entire thing out of one inch box steel, you really couldn't tell which one was the fake one from the real one while you were on stage. <clears throat> if you were looking at it from backstage, you'd see a big kind of growth on the back of the one, which was a cushion to help kind of slow the fall. So anytime we have to do something like that to keep an actor safe or to make it a repeatable effect, I think that's a bigger challenge for me. The the pigeons, the programming and stuff like that, that at this point it kind of comes, I can take code from before, I can copy paste it, put it in there. You know, right. when we have to build a piece of furniture or it has to behave in a certain way, you know, it, or I mean, even the boats were a prime example of that. Right, and, and let's, yeah, we'll take a second to talk about those boats because they're, they weren't, they weren't easy. And you had the challenge of having these boats on stage one that had to be light enough for the actors to be able to work with them constantly and take Mm -hmm. them on and off stage. So you had that you had to deal with, you had to deal with because of the amount of room that we had backstage, they had to be able to be folded up mm-hmm. in order to give us room to walk backstage. And then they had to be sturdy. <laughs> and, <Right>? then, <laughs> and then they had to be sturdy. And then, you know, we would drive you nuts because we'd lean on it too heavily and then the darn things would break in half. And then it we're happens. like, like uh, Darren, we broke your it's boat. Okay. It's okay. It's okay. But, it's going to happen. Yeah. But talk a little bit about that process and how you came to the conclusion of using what you used and and for those people who saw it. Sure. The whole process when we started talking with Amy Lane about how these boats were going to be used on stage, you know, we we knew a footprint, you know, roughly what we wanted to give you guys. And that was this initial, you know, one inch PVC pipe kind of diamond guitar pick looking thing that was down there. Which is what we actually use for rehearsals. Yeah, no, exactly. And that was so that you guys understood that you had something in your hands and that it was roughly this, roughly this shape. So then as we started going through the production meetings and deciding, you know, how else they needed to behave, you know, then there was talks of, well, the boats may need to come through the green room door. I was like, okay, so that reduces us to the boat has to fit within a 34, 36 inch window. And I'm like, okay, well then the boats have to make it around this corner of the set. Okay. Well, in theory, they should make it in an open way or in an open position. And then the boats needed to be able to travel down the center bomb, you know? So keeping that in mind, that changed a little bit of sizing and how these needed to work. So initially we started with a PVC pipe frame again. We thought PVC would be flexible enough that, you know, with just a little bit of torque, you could push it through an opening and it'll spring back to its its other shape. And as we built, I want to say two, yeah, two boats out of PVC pipe, we scrapped that after that second day. It was just not, they weren't looking right and the amount of work it took to get the PVC pipe to shape right, it just wasn't cutting it. So what we then ended up settling on doing because we had to keep it light. You know, if if weight wasn't an issue, I would have built it all out of Luan and, you know, some two by fours and we'd have actually kind of done a shiplap almost. To keep the weight down, we used quarter inch EVA foam. And we've been buying this now in four by eight sheets 
And I think I buy them 10 sheets at a time because I get a discount on shipping. I get free shipping if I buy $200 or something. But I use it in a lot of different shows throughout the year. So it's great just to have it on hand. This quarter inch EVA foam is real popular in cosplay right now because it's easily workable. It's the same thing anti-fatigue mats are made out of. So you can go to Harbor Freight, which we ended up doing because we needed some half inch EVA foam. So then we started by building out a frame, you know, so we drafted it first on paper pencil just to see how this would look as far as the sweep and the slope goes, because boats have got a very specific look to them, right? You know, they've got the keel on the front and it's got to have so much pitch, but the sides are not the same, the same radius. So we drew that all out and then took it into AutoCAD, drew it up, you know, an actual technical drawing for it. And then kind of went through the process of faking it until we had something that looked appropriate. You know, I, in all honesty, I wasn't real sure that that, that concept was going to work. There was the amount of times that we broke them while we were assembling them was horrifying because it was like, but these got to be able to live on stage and do their thing. You know, so we went through probably three or four different materials as far as the structure went, how to use an adhesive to keep them together. And I think what we ended up settling on was some reinforced Luon to make the tops and the bottoms. The ribs of them were Luon that were sandwiched with half-inch EVA foam so that it ended up being about an inch and a quarter uh, ribbing. And then we ripped down this EVA foam (laughs) and glued it to the sides. And then we proceeded to get high on spray paint (laughs) as we spray painted all of these boats. Yeah. Um, and yet they still had their challenges as we went through the show. You know, there's there's things you don't foresee happening. You know, there was a lot of um, the, a lot of the ways in which the boats moved that I didn't anticipate. You know, on the boat rollover, there was a lot of torque that ended up happening at the front of the boat that I couldn't account it. I, I didn't think about as we were going through the build. You know, I was thinking the boats coming in and out, you know, for the hinge and that there could be a little bit of stress on the boat from front to back, you know, as far as getting up and putting them down. But I never saw that torque happening in my head, you know, so. Yeah, and I don't know if that was anything that we necessarily, you know, anticipated during rehearsals either. With no, the, and with I don't the, think it was anything you did on Yeah, with the either. PVC. <clears throat> so, yeah, it always is, it, yeah, it always is a, is a challenge. And, And even more so, the challenge for you guys as the actors, you know, is it changes, you know, so unfortunately it changes more often than we'd like it to do. You know, you get a rehearsal prop and we do our best to keep it within the realm of what the final piece is going to be, you know, whether that's in weight or shape or footprint. But as we get closer and closer to the tech process and then even in the tech process itself, when that has to change, that throws you guys and what you've been rehearsing with and we don't, we don't like to do that. <laughs> oh, no. But I, and I think, you know, actors who have, you know, who've been around enough realize that, you know, you got to just kind of, you have to be able to adapt. Correct. The thing that I think gets to be difficult for what you do, and I don't know how many artisans, uh, apprenticeships you have uh, wor- working with you. You mentioned Carrie. I don't know how many other interns you have. We normally have one to two. So, you know, with something like, I mean, just know with like one man, two governors and men on boats going at the same time, 
you know, we were breaking those boats, not intentionally, but those boats were breaking more often than I think we would have liked, you know, and, you know, you're breaking a boat at like 10 o'clock at night, you know, in the last scene. And all of a sudden it's like, oh God, now we've got a matinee the next day and these boats have got to be fixed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it stinks for you guys because with something like that, where you have fragile props or just props in general, it's almost like you have to be on call because you, you know, you really have to. And when you've got two shows going at the same time, you got to maintain one show and deal with all the prop accidents that happen with two shows. And your mind's probably already on the next show and working on that. So you either have two in production and one on stage, or you have one in production and two on stage at at any given point in time, mm -hmm. you know, uh, luckily, the the playhouse, the, the most of us in the production side, all kind of look out for each other, you know. So Greg Shear is a fantastic uh, staff on duty. So staff on duty is anytime there is a production at the playhouse, any night that we have something on stage or an event that's happening, there is a staff member there that can deal with the light board, the soundboard, you know, or just the general hiccups that happen. So Greg. Or any of other SODs who would do that, you know, if there was a quick boat repair that they could do, they would handle that. If it and was I something, think he did a couple <clears> of times. Oh yeah, totally. And and Greg's uh, Greg's go-to is the high saw glue gun, you know, more often than not, which which is fine. It does the trick, you know, it fixes the prop, and then you know, if it's something that can hold off until Monday, then we look at it on Monday, you know. But you're right, it is kind of an on-call thing. There's a lot of times. Well, there was one time when the birds like stopped working and so it's had to come in on a Sunday morning and just to see what's wrong. Right. <laughs> and unfortunately, there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong in there, you know, and luckily it was just a, an undone wire, you know, but you can't ask Greg to do that. You can't expect you as the actor to crawl under a table and it's like, okay, what, what blinky lights do what here and what, what's not working. Right. You know, so yeah, uh, you either get really good at explaining how to do something via text or you pony up and you come in on a Sunday morning and you fix it before the audience is there. Because the audience deserves, not only do the actors deserve to have, you know, fixed props to be able to do their job, the audience deserves to see the same show that everybody else did before, right? right. They're still paying the same amount for the ticket. They're all here to, you know, get the laughs, see the, you know see the bits, you know, or get the emotions, you know? Right. So if that puzzle piece is integral to that, we have to fix it. So, but yeah, yeah, it, uh, it does wear on you a little bit. You know, I think that might be where my pension for homebrew comes from. <laughs> it's cheaper this way. Exactly. It's exactly. So it's not cheaper. <laughs> so yeah. So let's take a few moments to talk about your homebrew. How did you get into homebrewing? I honestly don't know. I think it was just kind of one of these things. One day I was like, you know, I want to brew beer. We had been frequenting the German American Society for a bit, which is not too far from your place here. And we joined their homebrew club. And then I just kind of got the bug. So we've been brewing now for, oh, I'd say since 2000, 2010, 2011. So it, it's, been a, it's been a good time. Do you... I know other people who homebrew, but I just never have really actually taken the time to ask them about some of this stuff. Do you only do it during like the spring and summer? Is there like only like a certain time of year? Or do you no, brew I, all year I round? brew all year round. Okay. Uh, so when we first started, we were making little five gallon batches, which you can do on your apartment stovetop. And it uses 
malt syrups and you know hops and a little bit of grain. But then when you really start getting into this hobby, then you start you know milling your own grain and deciding on the recipe and how how much of each thing you want into there. And then you start getting into 10 gallon batches. And so that's what we currently do now is we do tens. Is that like pony keg size or? (laughs) um, No. So I think a pony. What is a pony? It's a growler. Is it a growler? I don't know. Oh, no. I'm throwing out beer terms. Uh, I think I know. So five gallons, you know, is, is five milk jugs basically. Right. You know, or 54 bottles of beer. I okay. think it's really what it comes out to, 54 okay. 12 ounces, right? Right. So at this point, we're doing 100 and, 108, 115. Okay. You know, how, I... How long do you... How long does that last? Uh, so how long does that last well, me? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a loaded question. <clears throat> if you were to brew beer and not drink it all down in the same night, usually how long does it last before... What's the What's the cycle from the time that you're done and you've bottled your beer until... Like what's its you know when it has its born on date how right. long so born on date and then it takes two weeks for it to ferment two weeks okay. or longer depending upon your yeast or the style that you're doing okay and then most beer do get better with age you know okay. so we <clears throat> we've really stopped bottling uh, once we started going into the bigger volume so we have our own kegging set oh, up down oh, in the basement okay. now so we've got a a, a basement freezer that holds 45 gallons okay. worth of beer at any given point or beer or cider okay. at any given point in time. Okay. Um, we, we tend to host a lot of gatherings and family events and we bring beer to the playhouse. So, you know, the beer can be gone in a weekend, sure. you know, we can clear a five gallon keg pretty quick, you right. know, or I can nurse it if it's a higher alcohol, you know, beer for the better part of a year. You right. Know, it just depends on what I'm in the mood to drink. Sure. But yeah, I, the, I mean, the process is different for for different beers. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. And then we do cider too, which is kind of a, an odd duck that it takes a little longer. So you got to think of it more like a white wine. Okay. So, but yeah. What What is the normal process? How long does it take you from start to finish to do a brew? So a normal process, I like to start early. So about 6 a.m., and that's filling the kettles up with the water and grinding the grinding the grain. I would say I'm cleaning up by about two, so two o'clock in the afternoon. So six to eight hours is pretty pretty normal. Okay, you know that's start to finish clean up, right. putting it into the the carboys, pitching the yeast, and waiting for everything to start. So, but it's nice because it's a uh, you spend the time outside in the backyard with the dogs. You. We've taken to smoking uh, a variety of different meats on the grill while this is going because I'm going to be outside sweating my keister off. I might as well, you know, enjoy it in other varieties as well. Sure. But then, yeah, no, we brew all year round. I I took a took a hiatus from it. I probably hadn't brewed a batch of beer since October. Just work got busy and stuff around the house and just kind of stopped. And then we brewed a batch two weeks ago and lost it, unfortunately, to an infection, which happens. Uh, it's just the first time it happened for me. <laughs> so pouring 10 gallons of beer down the down the drain was not a uh, a highlight of my brewing career. I'm curious <laughs> how does a beer how does how do you get an infection? Um it can be issues of sanitation. Okay. Uh, how with, did you know? Uh it's you can tell does, by your nose. Oh, okay. Uh, with this batch I didn't have any clean carboys ready to go yet and I sanitized two kegs and poured the wort off into there with the hopes of moving it the next night over and pop the kegs open to transfer the wart 
And nope, it it, it already started to ferment without oh. me putting the yeast in there. Okay. Like when you when you make beer, you create the perfect environment for bacteria, for wild yeast, for other crazy critters to flourish. Okay. Uh, you know, there's sugar. It's dark. It's 70 degrees, usually 70, 80 degrees, and it's like the optimal breeding ground. That's why yeast does so well when you pitch it into there. It's got its food, it's got the natural light conditions, and it goes to town. Unfortunately, I didn't have the right critters in there. <laughs> <laughs> that is but, fascinating. I've always wondered how you how you do something well, like that. Well, we should have you over for a brew day. There you go. You don't have to come over at six, I promise. <laughs> you know, that's that's the boring stuff. Okay, that's the The real exciting stuff. stuff happens at about 10 noon. There you, know, you go. So There you go. But yeah. I'll bring my Michelob. No, hey, <laughs> I'm totally you, kidding. I, I was totally drinking Coors <laughs> Banquet that entire day, so it's fine. I got no issue. No, I'm totally kidding. As you see yourself going forward, as uh, what is there left for you to tackle props-wise? Is there something out there? Is there a technique out there that you've seen? Is there is there something out there that's a challenge that you're like, this would be, and, and I don't know. I mean, you can't really necessarily sit there and say, do you have a bucket bucket list for shows as a prop person? Maybe you can. I don't, I I, don't know. I don't know. I, I try not to look for, you know, that, that one show that I want to do, you know, or to, to prop because each show prevent provides its own challenge if you find it mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always something you can sink your teeth into, whether it's a paper prop or a puppet or a boat or a chair, right? You know, there's always there's always going to be something to get you excited. I think as far as challenges going forward, a big one for me is gun safety on stage, you mm. know, is coming up with, I'd love to come up with a, a stage safe gun that's believable, that gives you the sound that you want and is safe for the actors, right? You know, I, I don't know how much you've dealt with like blank firing guns on stage. You know, a little bit, not a lot. It, it's kind of one of those things that should really, should really give a healthy dose of fear and respect to people on stage, you know, because there's a lot of people who will, you know, either use the wrong type of load, you know, because their blank rounds can come in full load, half load, quarter load, cap, and they all provide different sounds, you know, and then your prop master or your weapons master should be paying attention to those kind of things, you know, but then you can have a fight choreographer who doesn't, is not necessarily familiar with guns and, you know, how they point them, you know, and the fact that you could take a 22 blank firing gun if it's got a front discharge on it. And just with the gas that's in there, you could blow a hole through a piece of Luan, you know, and you're putting that on stage with somebody who may either not have ever fired a gun or with a fight person who's never, you know, dealt with this on stage, or a prop master who is very unfamiliar with it, and is just like, well, this is a prop gun that was downstairs. Um, there's a, a big push uh, nationally. Uh, Jim Guy, who is the prop master for Milwaukee Rep, who used to be, maybe still be president of the Society of Prop Artisans and Managers. He's got great documentation on uh, gun safety on stage. Um, I think what I'd like to do is start working towards an electric one, like an electric gun, you know, something that is cueable and, you know, it's, it's got lights and the, the trigger of the actor is what triggers the soundboard, you know, to play that cue. And how can we make that believable in sound? So we still get the, you know, the Lenny moment from, 
of mice and men, right? Or you know any of those other iconic you know gunshots. Mm-hmm. You know, when we did uh, City of Angels, City, it was rough. You know, we did nine nine shots a night, I think, out of those blanks, and then we did the Western. What was it? the man who shot Liberty Valance? And there was a lot of gun gunfire in there, and I think I'm just biding my time until something. Sure. Something happens, right? And I'd like right. to nip that in the butt. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. that that's my that's my goal is to find a yeah. It would be kind truly of truly safe. I, I, believe me, I'm not anywhere close to being any kind of a props person. But I mean, it would have to be something. I mean, if you wanted it to be truly safe, it would be something that would give you that little wisp of smoke mm-hmm. that would have, say, like a little miniature speaker inside it, yeah. so that the sound was coming from the speaker inside the gun, which would make it the most believable because it's right there as opposed to coming from mm-hmm. speakers overhead. Yeah. No, it's a challenge, yeah. right? Oh, I, yeah. And, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, maybe it's uh, the suspension of disbelief, you know, like, do we just have to decide as an audience that, you know, that this isn't going to be a real gun on stage, right. you know? And, but and that, I think, and I think <clears throat> you know, to a certain extent, people have gotten used to, say, the electronic cigarettes that are on stage mm-hmm. where the, it just glows red on the end and everybody, you know, I mean, when they first came out, everybody was like, oh, they glowed blue. Yeah. <laughs> and you're yep. like, oh, that's not a real cigarette. But people have gotten used to it, mm-hmm. right? So you don't even need to see you know, the, the smoke from it anymore right. when people exhale, actor, as long you know. as you see the red and when people, you know, are taking a toke on it, then, yeah. um, people go with you. The part that still kills me about those is that they never burn down in the ashtray. So yeah, you're always having I know to deal <laughs> with the three inch white right. cigarette. I know it. I know it. As a former smoker, it bugs me too, but I'm just uh, like, well, you got to do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. So what is your favorite color? Blue. A lot of people say blue. Well, I, I had a, a, a 1964 Ford Falcon. Ooh. That was a medium metallic flake blue. Very nice. You know, so that, that old Ford blue. I really yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah. Who's your favorite band? Incubus. Ooh. Yeah. My wife says it's a miracle I'm not a stoner. <laughs> I listen to a lot of, uh, a lot of head music. Okay. <laughs> Is there anyone in history that if you could go back in time, you'd like to sit down and have lunch with? I think Albert Einstein would be a trip. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It'd, uh, it'd be fun. Yeah. Be crazy. He seemed like he had a good personality. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite curse word? Do you have one? <sighs> I, I mean, I have a penchant for cursing. I, it'd probably be the F word okay. and all of its many different variations. Sure. <laughs> you know. Yes. Some some itties on the you know the back end of that. Yeah. You know. But yeah. Yep. Ask Carrie. Carrie <laughs> Carrie would uh she'll give you a, a pretty good rundown of my my desired curses. <laughs> you have two dogs. Mm-hmm. Are they both German Shepherds? Yep. Yep. Both uh, Major is five and Maverick is two. And how did you come up with their names? They came to us with those names. Oh. So they're both uh Maverick is a rescue from the um or the Nebraska Humane Society. And then Major came to us from a family who couldn't care for him anymore. They had mm-hmm. a new baby in the house and had kind of banished him to the outside. And he's a, he's an indoor dog. He's yeah. a pampered peanut. So he came to us that way. What's your favorite musical? Do you have one? I really like the producers. 
Really, I mean, anything by Mel Brook, I can really get behind. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Mr. Melvin Kaminsky is pretty good. <laughs> you know, he's he's got a he's got a good good storyteller tale in him. Yeah. Is there a show coming up at the Playhouse that you think is going to be the most challenging for you this year? Hmm. Christmas Carol is always. You know, it's not challenging. You know, but it you pull it out of the box, you refresh it a little bit. Right. But the challenging part is adding new magic to it. Mm-hmm. You know, so we try to do something different every year. You know, most people probably don't notice, but uh, it feels good. It keeps it fresh for us. Like uh, all of the shops last year became wireless. So if you've ever been in the Christmas Carol mm-hmm. uh, and part of the street scenes or the shop scenes, in order for those units to move, the extension cables had to be unplugged from the dimmers and then you could move the buildings. And oh. now the buildings all have their own little wireless DMX dimmers inside of them. So oh, very everything's nice. been converted to LEDs. The okay. candles all are dimmable and the shops can come on in individual moments. And Jim really likes it because now he can fade them out as they walk away yeah. and they're not this hard off. So very, Oh, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. That's really cool. If you didn't live in Omaha, where would you like to live? Oh, Duluth, Minnesota. Really? Why? Uh, I, we just love it up there. Uh, I went up as a kid and camped up there with my folks. And then Megan and I went up there when we were dating. And uh, it's just become kind of our every other year destination spot. You guys like to fish, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Fish, camp, um, hike. Our, our normal thing now is to go to a destination, find all of the breweries within the destination, and then camp. So... Uh, this last trip we did to Duluth, we went all up through the North Shore and hit a couple of new breweries in Duluth and then Castle Danger and, oh, now I'm spacing on all the other names. But yeah, there's a lot of good ones up there. And the weather's great. It's nice, cool. Uh, summer-wise, you know, we go in the fall. Mm. So mm-hmm. get that lake water. Do you like sports at all? Uh, you know, I follow Nebraska football, but that's about it. Was never much of a sports person in life. <laughs> so <laughs> I can play a mean game of flag football, but that's about it. There you go. So. Favorite genre of movie? Mm, sci-fi. Mm, what's yeah. your favorite sci-fi movie? Fifth Element. Mm. Or The Fifth Element, I think is what it's called, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just like the artwork behind it. The artwork and the props. The props are fantastic. <laughs> Do you find when you're when you're watching a movie that you get, that, that, that you kind of get lost in oh, yeah. looking at the props. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln or Lincoln. Yes. With uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Yes. Great oh, movie. Oh my God. I lost myself so hard in that movie. You know, the desk, the paper props, like anything. Ah, wow. It's great. National Treasure, mm. for what it's worth, is fantastic for props. Uh, and if you ever get the opportunity, there's a great article floating about on the internet about that paper prop person, because that's all he does in life is paper props. So the guy who made the notebook for national treasure it you know he goes through sourcing the right papers and having to make his own paper for some of them and then the ink stamps he also did the paper props i think for boardwalk empire which is another great show that's got their stuff uh he's got their props nailed cool yeah i i can i can get lost in that kind of stuff (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit www.thankyoufivepod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. 
And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. 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 That's the other talk. 